I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector with new technology causing us to continually question the way we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the people leading this revolution and to highlight the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop and implement safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. This podcast is brought to you by FEV. Check us out on LinkedIn or learn more at FEV.com. Today's guest is Jay Giroux. Jay is co-founder and CEO of Damon Motors. So before Jay got into the entrepreneur world, really interesting background. He was a professional action sports um, athlete. So back in 1998, he was British Columbia's top-ranked professional snowboarder in all four freestyle disciplines. And he has a ton of um, experience in all the other kind of action sports areas, including motorcycles, which we'll talk, we'll talk about here. Um He's, he started a few companies in the electrification space and sustainable mobility space. Um, Rapid Electric Vehicles was the first and essentially de- developing electrified SUV and pickup trucks. But huge, huge topic right now, um, a little I don't know, b- before the market was ready, um, I think, is that we talked about here. But now his, his focus is with Damon and developing kind of the, I don't know, I'd describe it as the motorcycle of the future. So... He talks about this long-term vision. Ten years from now, um, the motorcycle plays a much larger role in the transportation ecosystem throughout the world than I think most people in the Western Hemisphere, I don't know, Western part of the world would guess based on our, our experience. But two-wheelers have a, have a huge application in many um, countries, especially those uh, I don't know, more de- de- developing countries. And so Jay, t- Jay speaks about this uh, this goal of having sustainable accessible and safe two-wheel option for for uh, for these markets at scale but to get there he's taking the the kind of the high-end approach now and developing the technology in a way where as he talks about you can get the profitability that allows him to continue down the down the path on the 10-year vision so right now they have this hypersport which um if, if you haven't go ahead and google and take it take a look at it the incredible um vehicle in itself and it, Essentially, it's a fully electric, super high performance, like, I don't know, like 200 miles an hour, 200 mile range on the highway, incredibly quick. And also they have this driver assist, a rider assist program, which um, we, we talk about a good amount in this interview. Really interesting tackling this from a two-wheel perspective and <clears throat> sorry, th- this, uh, this quest to make riding a two-wheeler as, as safe or safer than riding in a, a traditional four-wheel vehicle. So... Really interesting, uh, fascinating guy. I think cool mission he's on, cool technology he's developing. I think talking about the process and the team building and all. Um, I, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoy this uh, this discussion with Jay Jero. Today I'm joined by Jay Jero. Jay, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so can you please get us started and provide a little uh, a short background on kind of who you are, what you've done, what, what you're doing now? Who am I? Uh, um, well, I, I've actually declared myself as transfer, transportation transformed. So that's who I am. I'm okay. spending the rest of my life transforming transportation. And I started doing that uh, by founding a company called REV Technologies in 2008, which electrified pickup trucks and SUVs for the US military and US utility customers. And then I founded a company called Mojo in 2012, which has grown to become one of the largest connected car platforms for consumers in the world. And in 2016, I founded Damon, 
having realized that if I want to transform transportation, I'm going to have to do the transform the motorbike because it's the most dominant form of transportation in the world. So that's a little bit about who I am. Oh yeah. Nice and succinct there. Uh, RV, could you, so when you say electrifying pickups, what did, what did that actually look like? It looked like that right there. So that is a, a Ford Escape, and we did Ford F-150s as well. Uh, from 08 to 2012, we built electric drive systems that were highway capable, very powerful, long range, uh, electric drive systems that replaced the gas engine and transmission of pickups and SUVs. And not only were these vehicles electric, you know, we, we converted them basically from gas to electric, um, but they were able to feed energy back into the power grid. So the U.S. Army used them to stabilize military bases in the event of a natural disaster or an attack. Uh, they could run weapon systems and, and the entire microgrid off of the stored energy inside the, the vehicles. And so we built a cloud computing platform to control those energy packs remotely. And it's funny then. So now we're sitting in June 2021 and this is. All, all that's in the news, right? So it's electrification of the F-150. It's, it's the ability yeah. for them to serve as a generator and restoring back to the grid. So I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's, there's something to be said about timing. Yeah. Yeah. Were you <laughs> a little early back then? Yeah. A little early. Uh, 10 years. Cool. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure a great learning experience, yeah. if, if nothing else. Um, so, so speaking of Damon, so you already threw out the kind of the teaser um, that the two wheelers are the largest, uh, mode of transportation for the world can you so yeah we're, we're both in north america i'm in the detroit area you're in vancouver right yeah um uh, so that doesn't sound quite right to us yeah can, really can, can you talk to uh can you talk to what that actually means and what the numbers are yeah for sure well it's important to understand that the the demographic makeup of other countries in the world is absolutely nothing like ours so you know we have a population pyramid that looks like a pyramid you know there's a tiny number of babies at the top and there's a whole ton of people in the 60 to 85 year old category at the bottom. And so our population pyramid looks like that. Um, in other parts of the world, the population pyramid looks a bit like this, like a diamond, if you will, with a, with a belly in the middle in the, around the 40 year old group. Um, but the majority of countries in the world, the population pyramid is, is, is upside down with a whole ton of babies at the top and very, very few people living past the age of 60 or 65. And those countries are like Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, you know, the list goes on many parts of South America, um, where they, they are, where the, the average age is 35 and one in two people is under the age of 40, one in two, which is extraordinary. It means half the country is a millennial or a Gen Z. Um, and, uh, and they all ride motorbikes and they all ride motorbikes because the population densities are so high that they have to ride motorbikes that even if you can't afford a car, you have, you are at a huge traffic disadvantage by all the motorcycles flowing around you that it takes three times as long to get anywhere in a car. So it's not about affordability. And they, now these statistics that I gave you just, they collide with the fact that many of these countries are the fastest growing middle-class economies in the world. And they're going from having five babies to like having two or one and a half even. Um, and, and that's because they're coming into greater levels of, 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 of uh, income. And that's enabled by the ability to work, to work for companies all over the world remotely. So that's because of the internet. And they're coming into greater levels of education. Um, and so they want what we have. And so they're spending less time having kids and more time wanting things. And so when you look at all of these, this, these pattern changes within these countries at the macroeconomic level, um, it's extraordinary. They're all, they're all going to want you know, the latest of everything, um, but there's no room to have a car. 
And so that leads us to seeing, okay, well, what's up with a motorbike? Well, the motorbike, you know, outnumbers cars two to one manufactured annually. There's 160 million motorcycles made every year. The average purchase price of a motorcycle has tripled in recent years. So gone from $1,000 to $3,000 and it's continuing to climb. Um, and, and yet they're all gas, they're all carbureted and there's no safety systems on them. And they're 20 plus years behind the car, at least. Uh, so for example, when anti-lock brakes were introduced to motorbikes, which makes a whole lot of sense if you've, if you've ever ridden one, um, that was 15, 16 years ago. And anti-lock brakes are on less than one in 10 motorbikes today. Wow. So, the, so the motorcycle industry, you know, the Honda, the Yamahas of the world, they don't grant any safer option for their customers in those countries. Even if you can afford a $50,000 motorbike, you don't get better, you don't get better safety systems on them. So it doesn't change your economic or family well-being by spending more on a bigger motorbike. And Can I think you, that's a big failure of the industry. What's your opinion? Why the motorbike so far behind on the, uh, the safety and connectivity features? That's a good question. Well, there's, there's a bunch of reasons for it. One of them is the average price of a motorbike doesn't necessitate it, doesn't drive a, a, a proposition for the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. The other one is the attitude that, well, it's got two wheels. How could it be safe? And, and the thrill of motorcycle riding is the fact that they're not safe. I would argue that the thrill of riding a motorbike is not the fact that they're not safe. Nobody likes actually putting their lives at risk. They like the feeling of putting their lives at risk. But, you know, roller coasters are super safe, but your life isn't at risk and it's still really fun. Um, so, you know, the, the issue is, is profit margin business models. Uh, it's, it's, um, serving the, the lowest common denominator, you know, and, and thinking that, well, nobody out in Indonesia wants technology, which isn't true. You know, they all have smartphones and they all have computers at home and all that kind of thing. Um, and so the, I would say that a, a big problem is just all of that plus supply chain contracts and labor unions and all of that amounts to a massive amount of inertia and the motorcycle industry is unable to move to pull away from that in much the same way that Tesla's eating everybody's lunch in the auto industry. Yeah. And so it sounds, I, I don't know, let, let me know if this is a uh, legitimate question, but it, it sounds like you're your target market isn't necessarily the people who are in in the US right now who are driving a Harley or a Yamaha or, or something. It's it's different than that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And I'm glad you're touching on that. I mean, we are a Vancouver-based company and we've we focused on the, the the tip of the spear, so to speak, the top of the of the pile of motorcycles, which is the high-end niche super sport bike that you see on our website today. Uh, because it has the, the price point and the profit margin to, to justify new technology that we haven't yet you know, driven an economic scale to put on every single little bike in, in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is where the bulk of the market is. And if our mission is to, is to make the industry of motorcycling safer, uh, then we have to get there someday. So we have to have a plan that gets us from here to there, from the, from the premium niche early adopter of, of North America all the way to the average person in, in South America and Southeast Asia. Yeah. Not, not to overdo the, uh, the analogy to, to Tesla, but you can make it's following the right, the model S theory of throw that out there as a, a fun, it's not a, uh, it's not, I'm driving an electric vehicle because I want to go slow and to cut back on energy consumption. It's because this is just a really cool vehicle. And then that right. changed consumer perception. And now, yeah, EVs exactly. are well on their way. The, um, you know, the Tesla Roadster and then the X and then the S, they were all stepping stones to the three, 
which has now outsold all other mid-class, mid-sized cars combined, mm-hmm. plus 29%, which is really a really big, big uh, shift. I mean, what Tesla didn't do is make a car to compete with its with its Mercedes counterpart or its BMW counterpart. And that's what they all do. Mercedes makes a, makes a car to beat BMW in the same class. Toyota makes a car to beat Honda in the same class. And they all follow traditional marketing structures of how do we attack so-and-so's target market. Uh, and, and the mistake in that is they narrow them to that customer segment only. Whereas Tesla said, how do we make the best possible car in the world? And they did. And then how do we make the best possible car in the world for the masses? And they did, the Tesla 3. And that car took market share from every single other one in his class and a whole bunch below it. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's outsold all of them combined. It wasn't framed by the, uh, by the analogous example of a competitor's car. And that's huge. It was just forget about what anyone else has made in the past. How do we make the best possible motorcycle? Yeah. And then how do we make that at scale? And then how do we make it cheaper? Yeah. And it feels, I mean, so I've never even driven a, a motorbike before. And, and part of it is the safety thing that you touch on. Yeah. That I don't, the, the thrill to me isn't enough to, uh, to justify <laughs> the, the risk. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if it was, I mean, if it could be as safe as your car, would you do it? Yeah. I, I'd assume so. Yeah. So, totally. so let's, let's, let's talk about, uh, what, the technology that you have that you're, sure. you're bringing to make this happen. Yeah. So, um, I appreciate that what you're going to hear is going to sound hard to believe. Okay. <laughs> it was super hard to believe for me uh, in 2016 when I started thinking about this. Um, the goal was, how do we make a motorcycle as safe as a car? And that's crazy because, mm-hmm. you know, a car has four wheels for starters. Um, but let's just ask the question, right? And then spend months and months with engineers and, and dreamers and technology people and trying to figure it out. So the goal is now to make a, a motorcycle that stands by itself. And I, I think it's going to have three wheels, two in the front that lean like a, like, a, like a motorbike. And there's already many, many, many scooters and motorbikes with two wheels in the front. They're becoming very popular. Um, so, you know, how do we make it stand by itself? How do we make it avoid an, an obstacle for you only if you don't in time? So it's not self-driving, but it is able to avoid collisions. Um, and then... Define that 10 years from now, and how do we work our way back on a roadmap to today uh, that takes us there? Hmm. So it has to do with a bunch of things. Uh, We need sensors. We need lots of sensors. We need to perceive the environment around us the same way a human would, but far, far better. Uh, We need to know if the sky is is sunny or cloudy. We need to know which way the sun is coming from that, that can blind the cameras. We need to know if the road is wet or dry. We need to know the ambient temperature. We need to know if there's an intersection, how many lanes, what's the status of the traffic lights, how many vehicles are around us, et cetera, et cetera, right? And then we need to take all that information and we need to contextualize it and disseminate it into different buckets so that it can be reviewed by data scientists. Um, and then it's the system on board as to look at the causation of motorcycle accidents or the causation of near accidents and figure out how do we know when there is a causation. Um, and what I realized is it's exactly what an experienced rider already does. So when I, when I approach a motorcycle, when I approach an intersection on a motorbike, I'm judging the distance between me and the car ahead. Is that distance safe if you were to brake all of a sudden? Safe as in I could stop in time. Um, where are the cars coming from left and right? Is the yellow, is a light yellow, green or red? Is it stale or fresh? If there's a car that's making, waiting to make a left turn, does it look like he's going to make a left turn in front of me? 
or behind me? Or does it look like they don't see me at all? And cues are like, where's their steering wheel? Where's their wheels? Is there, is there blinker blinking? Is the car creeping or not? Is it starting to creep faster or slower? Um, all of those things I, I factor in very, very quickly as I you know, enter the intersection. The difference is as a human, I can only do that with one vehicle at a time. I can look at the car turning left, then I can look over at the car that might blow the red light. Then I can look at the car that looks like it's about to cut in front of me, right? I can only do that with one car at a time. A motorcycle with sensors all over it could do that. Our system can do that with 64 objects simultaneously in every direction, right? So we can, like a fighter jet, we can lock on to that car that's, that's passing through the intersection and we can track it. We can track its velocity, direction, and speed as those variables change. Um, and we can do that times 64. And so by doing that, and then if I were passing through that intersection on a Damon bike and a car does make that left turn and my handlebars vibrate to tell me I'm about to have a forward collision. And because of that vibration, I swerve. That swerve is the event that the system records to tell the cloud that it correctly understood a near accident and the human avoided it. And that moment is bundled up in the, is bundled up. Every single data point of that moment is then bubbled up and reverse engineered by a data scientist to build a software update to make my, my next update, make all Damon bikes smarter and safer. Yeah, and that's so, how we get collision avoidance. So uh, a few questions. So the first one, sensor suite, what, what does this look like? I'm, I'm sure there's cameras on the vehicle. Are you using radar cameras, and LIDAR? Yeah, no, no LIDAR. Uh, cameras, radars, beam forming microphones, humidity sensors, infrared, uh, uh, pressure sensors and feed and handlebars, uh, all telematics, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, LTE, bunch of other stuff. And how much, so, so there's, I know it's not hundred percent, but there's fairly significant overlap with similar work that's being done for automobiles, right? For, for four wheel vehicles. Are you able to tell you there's some overlap, but, uh, a self-driving car, has a zillion more variables to worry about. It's exponentially more difficult. Oh, in what, in what way? Well, um, a, you know, a car has to be able to drive by itself totally autonomously with, without ever any input from a human. Whereas, which is, you know, why Tesla calls our system autopilot. Mm -hmm. um, quite literally why we call our system copilot. It's intended, our system's intended to increase your situational awareness in the case of, you having autonomy to steer the vehicle or break the vehicle in time. Now, further out, 10 years from now, we're going to get to a system of, of collision avoidance, but it's not going to stop at every streetlight and know if the, if the gravel, if the yellow line just disappeared and know which side of the road to still stay on and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's quite a bit different than a full autonomous system. So are, are you able to, so yeah, I, I would certainly agree that it's, it's different. And then also, I mean, if there, if you are swerving, the ability to shoot a gap is very different in a, full car as, a as opposed to a motorbike, but uh, right. are, are you able to love it? So before we got where we are with autopilot um, and, and such, the, automo the automotive market went through similar where it was, yeah, let's have the ability to slam on the brakes rather if the driver's not seeing something or let's work on lane keep assist. Are you able to leverage anything from there? Are you guys really doing this from the ground up and developing your own um, algorithms and such? Great question. It has to be done from the ground up because cars are nothing like motorbikes in the way they behave. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tried. We took all the off-the-shelf stuff from you know top-of-the-line suppliers of collision avoidance systems, and they just they don't apply at all. And I'll, I'll tell you why. So um, a car can't lean to 60 degrees 
<laughs> and when, when you brake hard, a car doesn't pitch forward and point halfway to the ground the way, yeah. you know, if the forks compress at a hard braking on a motorcycle. So um, a motorcycle is a leaning device that takes up a quarter of the width of a lane, whereas a car is a non-leaning device that occupies largely the entire lane. And so if you picture an invisible blind spot zone beside a car, uh, and that blind spot zone is exactly one lane wide, so it doesn't read a car two lanes over, um, if that, if that was a motorcycle and it's in the far side of a lane versus the inside of a lane, that zone may bleed over into two lanes. And then as it goes around corners, you're going to have cam cameras and radars pointing at the ground, pointing at the sky. Uh, and so we have to develop all of our own unique algorithms using commodity sensors to, uh, to deal with the real-time adjusting to keep the, the, visible, the invisible zones around the motorcycle level with the ground, even mm -hmm. though the motorcycle isn't. Wow, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Another app. <laughs> we got ourselves with a lot more work than we thought. <laughs> yeah, and we, we've uh, we, we, we've had some some role in a project that I've been um, somewhat involved in in uh, you developing an automated three wheel motorcycle as a, t a test vehicle for automotive. So essentially, yeah, you don't want someone driving eighty miles per hour next to a, a vehicle that's working on him. We found out some things about. Uh, trying to turn at 80 miles an hour in a, in a motorcycle is, is not necessarily the easiest thing without a driver on it, but right. uh, this, this all makes sense. Uh, how about driver skill? I wanted to get your, your thought on that. So I, I assume early stages or so for no driver assist, I assume driver skill has a huge correlation with the ability to avoid collisions. Like if, if I've got on a motorcycle and I've, I have five hours of driving, as opposed to someone who's been driving their whole life, you're going to be yeah. much better at avoiding, um, to what are you already there or, or where, where's the target where you can get to the point where I know an, an amateur rider can be as safe as someone who has logged all these hours and experience. I would say that our system today, which is today, it's a collision warning system. does not mm -hmm. predicting and it's not avoiding. I would say today our, our collision warning system definitely takes a huge bite out of the probability of accidents, regardless of whether you're a beginner or an expert. Um, so let me come back to the beginner expert thing in a sec. Uh, so when you look at all the ways in which a motorcycle goes down, 75% uh, of motorcycle accidents occur in intersections. Two thirds of them are caused by drivers. Uh, and in only 5%, speed is a factor. In only 5%, excessive speed being you know, above the speed limit. Uh, so 95% of accidents are, are the rider is going the same speed as the rest of traffic, which makes sense because traffic is heavy. It's hard to go a lot faster. Mm -hmm. um, and the rider is not the cause of the accident. But in half of all motorcycle accidents, uh, riders were, have found that they took no evasive action before it was too late, which insinuates they didn't have enough reaction time or they didn't see it coming at all. And taking no evasive action means they didn't steer or brake before they got hit. So we're talking about a, on motorcycling, we talk about a bubble, right? The, the bigger the bubble, the more time you have to react before something's in your way. Um, and so when you look at all that data, you know that you have to, that if you could reduce a lot of accidents, if you solve simply the intersection accident caused by drivers. And then if you look at what happens, well, that's three things. Either they get T-boned, they get hit from behind, or they get hit in the front. So knowing those three things, if we trained our system to only deal with intersection accidents in those three variable very three types we would reduce a lot of bike accidents regardless of whether the rider is beginner or expert now beyond that riders still with lack of expertise beginners often 
over, um, they undercorrect in a, in, a, in a corner. So they're going too hot into the corner and then they don't steer enough. Or they very often get target fixation, means they're looking at the wall instead of looking at through the bend of the curve. And they wonder why the motorcycle goes wide. I mean, you always, the bike will always, always go wherever you're looking, always. Um, and so that those are the accidents of inexperienced riders. They're single vehicle accidents most often. Gotcha. Which are, I, I mean, still bad, but probably less likely to result in serious. Yeah, injury. they're a lot less bad than hitting a moving vehicle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and they're also correctable, but that's a different scope of work altogether. Yeah. And I mean, and, and also not to imply, I mean, driving my car, you, you definitely, an, an experienced driver is much more likely to get in an accident. It's, it's not unique to motorbikes, right? Right. Uh, yeah, sure enough. But so let's talk about the electrification piece. then. so it seems like it's, it's a big enough challenge potentially to bite off the, uh, this automated assisted, uh, assisted driving, um, market. What's, what was the driving factor for going for a full, uh, battery electric approach? Yeah. So a number of things, I guess, on the one hand, it just comes from a founder's vision. It's what I believed was right. It's what we need to do. Um, two, a collision warning system designed by a startup sold to major motorcycle manufacturers, let's say as a package that we license, um, is an exceedingly high hill to climb. In fact, it's much harder to depend on an agreement with Yamaha, Honda, and, and KTM or BMW than it is to depend on yourself to build a better product. Three, the motorcycle is so archaic and so unevolved that there was just a major opportunity there alone. And the world's obviously going electric. So that seemed like a no brainer. Um, and the collision warning system's ability to be intelligent and constantly learn would be beholden to the connectivity and therefore the business model of charging for that connectivity that the motorcycle manufacturers can't do. I know that because I built a connected car startup and, you know, we had an exceedingly hard time working with the, motor, the car manufacturers to convince them that people would pay for connectivity, which is why we went around them and we sold Mojio through wireless carriers. Um, so with all of that, I thought, you know, to build the motorcycle that gets perpetually safer, the same way Teslas get perpetually safer, we're going to have to build the whole bike. And, and there's just, like I said, such a huge opportunity there. There's no clear leader, um, which goes back to my original mention that what's really underway, if you take a big enough view of the world, you widen the aperture out to 25 years or so, what's really underway is a massive motorization of the general public where today one fifth of the human population has access to transportation in much the same way that 20 years ago, only one fifth of the human population had access to a cell phone, the ability to connect with others and access information on the internet and become further educated. Uh, and over the next 15 to 25 years, the other four fifths are going to become motorized. So the question is, what are they going to drive? Now, if you go to any major city in Africa, you know, where, where most people still don't have access to transportation, but they're going to, and they're the fastest growing middle-class economies in the world, they're not going to buy cars. As I said at the beginning, they're going to buy a motorbike. Are they going to buy a gas-powered motorcycle? Are they going to buy an electric one? Do they care about their family's safety? Of course they do. So it seems to me that if we can skate to where the puck is going, we can be the Honda of the 21st century and define a, a, a safer, smarter, cleaner, quieter vehicle that masses will depend on and be the, the most dominant uh, transportation player in the world. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, from, from a sustain, sustainability standpoint, I mean, simply if you're driving one or two people, it's, 
I don't know, motorbikes a lot less mass to move and a lot better aerodynamically than any passenger car you're going to have out there. So, so that in itself is, is, a, is a great shift, right? Unless you're. And, and I think about the materials cost of building yeah. cars for the other four fifths of the world versus building a motorcycle. Can you, what's uh, what size battery? Pack? So you have what, 200 mile range on, on the highway, if I, if I remember right, um, for your current, I can't imagine yeah. it's a huge battery pack that's required for this. Yeah. So rewinding from 20 years from now, all the way to today, to our, our Tesla Roadster, our entry point, if you will. You know, the, the Damon Hypersport really is our beachhead, right? It's there to say to the world that uh, motorcycle, electric motorcycles can outperform gas. First and foremost, if you can't outperform gas, you can't transition the world. There have been dozens of electric cars before the Tesla S, and none of them got the world out of gas cars. But the Tesla S came along and said, we can do a hardcore smackdown on gas car performance, and we can be safer and better aerodynamic and all the other things, better uh, passenger driver experience, etc. So, so we've gone to great lengths to develop a powertrain uh, that is more powerful, lighter, better integrated, um, longer range, high, higher acceleration, etc. Um, and we did that with a 20 kilowatt hour battery pack that is fused into the frame. So our pack and our frame are one. It is a frameless design where the pack itself takes the torsional stresses of the whole motorcycle. And we did that not, not knowing that by doing that, we could actually also turn it into a platform where once you've done that, the chassis can be the chassis for a cruiser or the chassis for a sport bike or a commuter bike or an adventure bike or a dirt bike or a tour bike, simply by changing the, the two pieces of metal that hold on the suspension. So it's essentially the by skateboard. Suspension, you change the behavior of the bike completely. And then you change the plastic and you change the look and you move the seat back further or up further or whatever. And you've got yourself a cruiser or you've got yourself a sport bike all from one chassis. So hyperdrive is a fully integrated uh, 20 kilowatt hour electric drive system uh, with completely uh, proprietary components, motor, inverter, charger, uh, DC, DC converter, battery cell, battery pack, everything except the cells is proprietary to us. Well, wow. That's, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, and it sounds like you, uh, I don't know, either intentionally or unintentionally came to this, uh, I don't know, Rivian canoe or others have, have this kind of skateboard which to take the top off. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And you can do it with motorbikes too. And, you, and so you should, right. Yeah. Um, so then we, we've also architected the inside of the, the cells, the battery. So the modules to, um, so we change out some of the batteries uh, in the parallel group and we can reduce the 20 kilowatt hours to 15 or 11 so we can have a smaller pack, uh, but we're not changing. We're not having to re-engineer an entirely new chassis or frame or anything. So we just use software to reduce the motor output and we put fewer cells in at the assembly line and we can have, you know, small, medium, large versions of every bike or yeah. low, medium, high range or low, medium, high power. Because as we bring down the number of cells in the PP group, it linearly, linearly drops the horsepower, it linearly drops the range, and of course it drops the weight and cost. Yeah. And I guess one, one thing that I would be so thinking about the long-term vision with, which is kind of rest of world and um, these areas where transportation is growing, not, not currently the greatest electrical grids in some of these places. So it's going to, I, I imagine, be important that it's not an hundred kilowatt hour battery pack that's going to take yeah. eight hours to charge. So, yeah. 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 I mean, so, so the hyperdrive is the foundation or the platform for our Western market bikes, our big bikes. Uh, which are much, much higher profit and higher revenue um, because, 
you know, for every hypersport we sell, we had to have to sell eight little bikes in, in, in Southeast Asia one day to make up for the revenue and the profit of one hypersport. Mm-hmm. Um, and largely our business model, our business will always make most of his money off Western market bikes. And that's exactly how it is for Yamaha, BMW, Honda today. Yep. Um, but they can't ignore the rest of the world and, and neither will we. Um, but we're going to make a mini hyperdrive, which we call Hyperlite, which will be a, a, a similar foundational platform, chassis battery platform for a line of lower cost bikes. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, sounds exciting. I like, uh, yeah, the, the strategy and, and all the, uh, to what is the, I guess, what's the biggest thing that you've learned? Um, so, so you've been in this electric vehicle space. We've touched on a few of these things since you, uh, started REV, but are, are there any things that you had misconceived or, um, biases or, or things that you've changed your mind on as you've been in this space to where mm. you've gotten now? Mm. Um, I've learned a lot about timing. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, it's way, way, way harder to raise money than anyone will tell you. Yeah. You'll always need way more money than you think. And so plan for that. Um, I don't know if I've changed biases, so to speak. I still think hydrogen is a joke. It hasn't changed. You know, other than in specific use cases, which has, have yet to be proven, like long-haul trucking and probably aviation, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, I, I, I'm annoyed that every 15 years, hydrogen becomes the, 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 the darling of the, of the public markets <laughs> again, and everyone acts like it's new. Um, like it's just been discovered or something. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I mean, they've been building hydrogen cars in Vancouver here since the early eighties and we still don't have hydrogen cars. Um, you know what? I think the, the human problem is by far the hardest in all its forms, human factors, human centric design, human relations, human, uh, uh, hiring, uh, cultural, uh, cultural relations in a company. Uh, your whole company's success depends on that, on those things. It depends on the human, the interface to the human. If you can't have a great company, a great place to work to attract the best talent, it doesn't matter how good your dreams are. It doesn't matter how good your engineering is. It doesn't matter how big your market is. None of it matters. If you can't interact with people, like as a corporation, interact with people in a way that attracts and retains the best talent in a way where they all symbiotically produce your dream produce that, 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 that thing you've, you've designed as an engineering team. Um, and then the, you know, the human factors, uh, for example, in, in much of the world now, the popular electric vehicle is one where you can pull a battery from it and you're, you're, you know, you work for an engineering company, but most people immediately ask us after we tell them our battery is 20 kilowatt hours, most people immediately ask us if we're going to have battery swapping stations. Well, 20 kilowatt hours is 250 pounds. We're not swapping that, you know? And, and the ones that you can swap in the small electric scooters of like Singapore, for example, are even swappable, they're 25 pounds. So, you know, give your mom a 25 pound battery while she's carrying her groceries to the elevator. She's not going to do that every day, even at 25 pounds, which is the limit to the human factor. So, you know, either batteries have to get exponentially lighter, which has never happened. They will get lighter, but not exponentially. And or battery swapping is a bad idea. You know, which leads us back to the infrastructure thing you mentioned about charging and, and quality power grids and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's still a really, really complex problem. 
mm-hmm. and it's so multifaceted, multifaceted, and it's hard to not appreciate that the that the gasoline infrastructure, as complex as it is, is really really reliable. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see, and I don't know. I, I imagine you're not necessarily, especially since you're skating to where the puck's going, you you have some time for that to be built out and. Yeah, you can be successful in the Western Hemisphere with people charging in their garages and, and such. Right, but, while, uh, while the rest of world infrastructure is catching up. Yeah, which it totally will, but it's not where we where, where we are in North America. So, what is so you, you mentioned the, the human factors as being so critical? What is something that you think uh, you do particularly well? So, so what is this is a, a question I ask all my guests, which is a maybe sometimes challenging. But what what is a what is the strength of yours that you've been able to leverage so far, whether it's personality, mm-hmm. skill you picked up or, or you whatever? Know, I'll tie this back to the other part of the human equation, which is, which is hiring. Um, and it's like, it's hard to find people who know how to build electric vehicles. It's extra hard to find people who know how to build electric vehicles and want to do so for a motorcycle company mm-hmm. and then make it. And then we make it even more challenging to find people who actually know how to ride, who therefore appreciate the, 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 the rider centric UX that we have to focus on to, to really change the game because like a motorcycle that blinks or beeps or, or vibrates at you to tell you there's an impending collision sounds like a bad idea. It sounds like a really big distraction to something you really need to be heads up for when you're on a motorbike already. Yeah. So how do we do what we do without increasing distraction? Um, it starts with having people who ride. Is it critical right. at all, all levels of product development? Engineering, marketing, executives, all levels. And that, that, that's been hard, but we've got exceptional talent. Maybe combined, we have probably 200 years riding experience in the company. We have 150 years electric vehicle engineering experience in the company. Um, almost every single person rides and many of them race, uh, flat track, adventure, long distance, uh, enduro, uh, track. Uh, so thanks for, thanks for that. Um, but on the UX side, you know, a motorcycle is actually a really terrible experience from a UX perspective, you, you can't see what's behind you because your mirrors are either vibrating or they show you your elbows or both. And the reason they show your elbows is because they already are on really long sticks to get wide, but then to see around your elbows, they'd have to be even on longer sticks and they look like massive antennas. So motorcycle uh, mirrors um, do a terrible job of showing you what's behind you. Helmets truncate your peripheral field of view from 180 to about 140 degrees. So when you take your eyes off the road ahead to shoulder check, you lose sight of the vehicles in front of you, those red taillights that you worry about when you're driving. You can no longer see them for brief moments whenever you shoulder check. On a motorcycle, because there's no cage, you're shoulder checking all the time. And so you're taking your eyes off the road in front of you all the time. That car in front that you think is 50 feet, not knowing it's only 35. Because as a human, we're terrible at measuring these things. So, um, and then we always underestimate how long it takes to break, the distance it takes to break. And that's why people are tailgating all the time and, and, um, and so we solve all these problems, right, with Copilot. Uh, one way we solve them, of course, is with a radar that tells you precisely how far that car away is, but it doesn't tell you with a number. It tells you with a bright red light and vibrating handlebars. And you can't ignore vibrating handlebars on a motorcycle. It doesn't matter. Like on a, on a, ste- on a steering wheel, you can be driving with your right hand or you can be driving with your left hand. People drive with their knee all the time. You know, vibration is not a good solution in a car. In a motorcycle, it's really effective. It's visceral, it's uh, unavoidable, and you're always planted with two hands on your handlebars. So, so Copilot works really well because of that. The other second thing is 
um, we have a rear view display, which is a seven inch touchscreen that's fed by the rear facing camera. So it shows you everything behind you at all times. And it's just below your line of sight. So as you glance down to what would normally be an instrument cluster with your speedometer, we have a seven inch display showing you in full color, 4K what's behind you. And it overlays your speed and your battery range and so on. Uh, so it was really effective because every time you glance down to look at one of those, you know, your RPM or your speed or whatnot, you also see everything behind you in three lanes. And with that, I have stopped using my mirrors entirely. So when I've got blind spot detection, collision warning, a rear display, mirrors are, are become totally redundant on the Damon bike. Uh, and so I think all of that was like part of really being deep in the psyche of what it's like to ride. And that comes from all of the, the team's time on motorcycles. It's funny because it seems so obvious to, I mean, we're, we're used to backup cameras on, on cars. So yeah, yeah. if you have to turn your entire body, it seems like an obvious uh, thing there, but yeah, it's interesting here. How about just quickly diving deeper on the hiring thing? So if you, if you do have this limited talent pool, let's, let's call it of people who are, uh, who can relate and really make an impact. Yeah. Anything in particular you found that makes a big difference in attracting and retaining these people? Yeah, totally. And, and what's super crazy about it is, is while on the one hand, you need people who ride for many, many years, like I just described. On the other hand, putting your entire engineering team through a motorcycle training course was almost better, which we did. And we offer everybody gets motorcycle training because then they're in the, they're in the, they're standing in the shoes of the beginner rider, hmm. which in a way is better because then, then they know what the majority of our customers are dealing with. The majority of people are, are, are new entrants into the sport. And and the problems that, that the engineers face when they're on a motorcycle for the first time, the worries, the fears, the anxieties, the noticing that they can't see around them very well, they're dealing with those issues acutely as brand new riders. And then they take that back to their engineering. And uh, that's really what I think lends to the creativity. So, um, you know, as far as retention goes outside of motorcycling, because not everybody joins Damon desperate to learn to ride a motorbike. Um, yeah, we do a lot of things. Um, the biggest one is just creating a place where people really want to work having unlimited vacation policy, um, insisting people take vacation where real creativity happens, uh, um, being, you know, fun and, and, and lighthearted about the world and, and, and um, putting great people around great people and, and going out of our way to keep jerks out of the company because that just really, really taxes you, you know. There's nothing worse than not wanting to go to work. Yeah. And if ever anybody at Damon felt that way, I, I, would, I would find a way to you know, fix that. I, I mean, I'm not, not integrated in the company at all, but I did say from the outside as well, it seems like a uh, definitely purpose-driven, there's a pretty clear area you're skating to. And uh, yeah. also seems like you got a pretty good score, storytelling. So I imagine that that drives well with people uh, yeah, working yeah, towards I a clear goal. I constantly underestimate the purpose part. I constantly, thank you for saying that because I, that is the number one reason everybody here is here is, is we're really purpose-driven. Um, people have said to me on countless occasions, I really want to be here at Damon because, you know, I want to care about what I do. And, and like, I don't want to make another thing for people who already have 10 dating apps or whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's the purpose. And uh, I forget that that's so important to everybody. Cool. So I think last, last real question I have, um, again, I, I ask all my guests, but a, a favorite book or books of yours. So is, is there anything that you you've read in it? I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be a book, but is there anything that you you've read in either personally or professionally that has had a significant impact on you? definitely Elon Musk's biography. That's a must read. If you want to know what it really takes to do the hardest things in the world, read his book. Um, 
the ability to overcome absolutely insurmountable challenges. Most of that, of that biography is about SpaceX. And so it's, it's pretty great. Um, but right now I'm reading No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, founder of Netflix. And um, it has propelled itself to the best book I've ever read for business. Oh. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, two new uh, two books I haven't read. So I have to add those to the list. Oh, yeah, you got to read them. They're super good. Cool. So, Jay, this has been a really interesting, a lot, a lot of fun talking. Anything from your perspective that you, you missed, you wanted to get across um, that you think our, our listeners should know? Yeah, I guess what's been really, really warming about what we're doing is, is a significant percentage of people that have ordered a Damon bike already um, gave up on motorcycle riding. They had a bike, they, you know, had a scare or they had a life change of some kind. And so they gave up riding. Very, very common story. Um, and they've come back to riding because of, of what Damon offers. Um, and a significant number of people who've ordered a Damon bike always wanted to, but wouldn't because it wasn't safe. So we're attracting a base of customers that no other motorcycle in the, comp- in the world can attract. So that's really exciting. We're widening the market. And like I said, if four-fifths of the world is not yet motorized, the big question is, what are they going to ride or drive? Um, the other thing is, make sure you follow us on Instagram and, uh, and order your hypersport at damon.com. Nice. Yeah. And uh, last comparison to, to, to Tesla, but I, th- I think similar with, I don't know, their Cybertruck, they're not going after the F-150 driver with, right. with, with, with that vehicle, right? That's not the way to necessarily win and change the market. It's right. Yeah, it sounds like what you're doing here, which is trying to, to grow and expand beyond people who are currently in the market with the old technology. Yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with an electric F-150. I would totally get one if there wasn't a Cybertruck out there, but there is, so that's what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, yeah, like I said, Jake, really fun. Appreciate you coming on and uh, best of luck to you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for the call. Thanks. The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact, share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.